Hey there, dog people of the internet. I'm Sarah Stremming, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I share my thoughts, experiences, and cases, as I interview experts and answer your questions when it comes to the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. It's a new year and I have a news flash. Black lives still matter. I'm looking forward in 2021 to not only continuing to donate to causes that I believe in, but also to providing more of a platform for BIPOC voices in the dog world here on Cog Dog Radio. So stay tuned. Y'all, I had the absolute pleasure of talking to Kim Brophy, and we talked for a while, so this episode is going to be split into two. And Kim is an applied ethologist. She's a professional family dog mediator, and she solves problems between people and their dogs using the modern science behind applied ethology. Um, She's locally, nationally awarded certified dog behavior consultant, and she's really breaking the mold in the pet dog training industry. And I'm really excited about her work And so in this first part, we talk about the science of perception and what might make, you know, say your border collie perceive a speeding bicycle in a different way than your beagle does. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hey, Kim, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Sarah. I'm so excited to be here to talk to you today. I'm really excited too. So everybody, Kim and I were kind of jamming about what to talk about on Cogdog Radio. And Kim, you had this idea to talk about the concept of perception and kind of maybe how our dogs perceive the world. So can you tell us tell us why and tell us what that is? Well, um, so there's different definitions depending on the fields, but for the purpose of our conversation, I want to talk about perception from a neuroethological lens. And so what that basically is, is looking at the um, hardwiring and and basic connections um, for the ways animals interpret stimuli in their environment and the kinds of responses they will have naturally, instinctively to those events uh, based on what the pressures and selective forces have been on them historically. And it really has a lot of important implications for our dogs who've been artificially selected to perceive things certain ways, notice some things, ignore others, depending on what their uh, historical purpose, working breed, uh, agenda was of our ancestors. So, there's, there's a lot to unpack there, but it, it has a lot of implications for pet dog owners and families, as well as for people that are doing sport and competition. <laughs> unpack that term. <laughs> well, so first of all, um, you know, the whole field of applied ethology, which is my background, um, applied ethology is basically taking the field of ethology, which is the study of animals behavior in its natural habitat from kind of an evolutionary perspective. Applied ethology is looking at what happens in captive and domesticated species, companion animals, dogs being one of those. And that field asks us to look at all these different lenses so we can understand what's happening at the intersection of human and animal um, behavior in captive and domestic environments. So 
when we're talking about neuroethology, it's bringing this perception and lens to the table about what is the animal hardwired to notice, literally have the physiology mm-hmm. to notice and respond to, um, and and what is what's on their radar, what's not on their radar, and it, it from a ABA perspective, like a fun way to think about it is what has history and life experiences of ancestors trained individuals to notice or ignore as important or not important because basically any animal would die of exhaustion if they were neurologically attending to all the stimuli in the environment at all times. It's not possible. Uh, So what we have to do is we filter out what's important, what's not important. We think of it in kind of learning terms like, you know, sensitization or desensitization or classical conditioning or counter conditioning, where we're trying to make certain things meaningful in one way or not in others. Um, and, and that's what's happening in the moment. And in a way you can think of that, like a little drop in time in the evolutionary process for any given animal and their species. Uh, for what is going to influence subsequent generations for what they notice and what they ignore. We're literally training genes in real time. It's crazy to think about it that way, but pretty cool stuff. I'm thinking about which no one will be surprised to know is border collies. (laughs) 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 Because I'm really passionate about them. I have six of them and I've had them for 20 years and I'm, I feel like I'm constantly trying to explain to people that there's a reason they're weird, you guys. The fact that they, they have to care that sheep number 394 is like thinking about leaving right. the group affects the way that they see everything. Right. Um, and, and no, you shouldn't actually be surprised that they want to stalk and control the movement of the cyclists on the path. Right. right. So talk about that a little bit as far as, you know, these very, very highly specialized breeds Uh that then have to live in suburbia. (laughs) So um, I'm already having too much fun, Sarah. Okay. So I love picking on Border Collies. They're my poster child. They're the easiest to pick pick on because they are just this extreme example of hypertrophied selections for attending to certain stimuli and then very exaggerated arguably fundamentally neurotic behaviors and expression in response to those things. Um, I don't think nature would have done that to an animal, but they're really useful for us. (laughs) Um, So, you know, when you, when you think about like what is useful in one environment, okay, so let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about nature's version and then let's talk about humans and artificial selection for dogs in nature. Everything is based on survival pressures and opportunities. So, Nature is basically saying the animals that notice that are going to be more successful. The animals that are tending too much to that are going to be less successful, right? That's taking too much energy and the cost benefit analysis of of basically evolution and survival. Um, So if we had uh, any animal in a given condition, set of conditions, so a certain habitat, a certain ecology, there will be intrinsic to that very specific habitat, certain pressures and opportunities. And that's why species and subspecies develop, 
you know, certain behavioral and physiological traits in order to adapt to those changing circumstances. The ones that work really well stay consistent throughout generations. Um, nature's always playing with this kind of like descent with modification, kind of like if you think about the 2021 version of a certain type of car, as opposed to like the 1996 version of a car, it's like, what didn't work? What can we improve on? What did everyone like? What did they not like? Um, so that's, that's kind of, you know, if you were thinking about culling animals, let's go back to hundreds of years ago, where we weren't doing as much controlled breeding in terms of stud books and determining who was reproducing with who as much as we might be in some cases, uh, deciding what animals we favored and which ones we, we didn't favor, which ones we culled. So in other words, we might eliminate certain animals from the population, or we might give extra resources to other animals in the population according to what behaviors we like. So that's human intervention in natural selection, but it's still natural selection because nature's deciding who's breeding. So there could be all sorts of things, whether it's the weather, you know, the climate, um, um, the terrain, the types of behaviors that are required, whether that's endurance or is it sprint, you know, the, all sorts of things. If you think about the kinds of behaviors that have been selected for historically uh, in different types of animals that are going to work in those conditions. And the point there is that it's like a key to a lock. The key being the animal and the lock being the habitat. And they're meant to work perfectly together. And nature has this super cool, remarkable system of checks and balances for working out the kinks for what's working and not working so that it's adaptive. It's really cool. Enter humans and artificial selection. <laughs> yes, so we're we're going to throw a little cog in that machine or a little, um, you know, wrench in there because what we decided was, okay, first of all, it really was natural selection with human involvement. In other words, we were trying to survive. Dogs created an opportunity for us in order for us to be more successful farmers, um, it, protecting our property and resources, uh, whether that was moving animals from one location to another or protecting them where they stood, whether it was eradicating uh, different kinds of uh, animals that were coming in as a, um, even like a scavenger or a varmint of some sort. And we needed, you know, basically the equivalent of pest control in a four-legged dog. But there were all sorts, sorts of pressures we were dealing with as humans that dogs could help out with. So that was how the story first started. And at some point, we got more into tinkering and playing God with their DNA for mm -hmm. our purposes first functionally because we wanted to create these behavioral specialists and then over time some of it just became kind of romantic and that we wanted to preserve certain traits certain looks certain behaviors that were typical for the breed or breed type and um increasingly what happened was this dissonance, particularly in the last hundred years between the lock and the key. So the particular pressures, context, behaviors, attributes that we once desired, that our ancestors even relied on for these dogs to exhibit in these different conditions throughout the world, all of the sudden we found ourselves in the most rapidly changing period of time in the history of, of the planet. So the rate of environmental change in the last hundred years is unprecedented, period. Mm -hmm. And so we brought dogs along through our modern industrialized development yeah. in these rapidly changing times and conditions, went from a hundred years ago where people were still predominantly living 
both geographically and daily outdoors, um, working the land, doing different things that required or at least created the opportunity for a dog to accompany them in some semblance of a version of the kinds of behaviors they were bred and selected for. And were still periodically used um, up until really a very recent last 30, 40 years where most of those jobs disappeared for these dogs. It's not to say yeah. all of them, but most of them. Oh. And, yeah. and so now we have, you know, kennel clubs and our enthusiasts, uh, none of which I am against at all. I just am objective about my concerns about some of the unmitigated uh, problems and fallouts of them. But th we've maintained these dogs in their shape, both behaviorally and um, physically, that now are a key with no lock for in most cases. Yeah. Um, yeah. So in nature, that would create dysfunction, madness, poor adaptability to circumstances. And I'm looking at the growing epidemic of dog behavior problems in this country that just seems to double every year these last five years. And I'm like, it's the and same. everybody's saying what's wrong with the dogs right. and what's wrong with the dogs. And right. the reality is I love that metaphor is that you've now got the key with no lock. Yep. That's what's wrong. It doesn't fit. And we're sitting there grinding it and grinding sure. it to try to make it fit. And these poor dogs, they don't understand their world around them, much less know how to operate in it. And so, you know, talking about perception, to go back to that first point, the way they perceive the jogger and the bicycle and the skateboard and the child giving them a hug after they've curled up on their bed, uh, being crated for 10 hours a day, um, you know, someone walking into your front door unannounced without being let in first, all of these types of situations are contexts that we literally selected for certain behaviors to ex to be exhibited in historically. And now we call those behaviors that we hardwired into the dogs <laughs> behavior problems Probably. and disorders. And we throw Prozac and a behavior plan at it. And, yeah. Oh, it's a real pickle we found ourselves in. Well, it is. And, um, you know, I'm teaching an online course right now where nobody, my students are really fantastic and don't actually have illusions about the fact that, of course, their German shepherd wants to ward off the intruder that is the UPS, FedEx, etc. man. And especially right now, I don't know about you, but I'm getting way more packages than I ever used to. <laughs> yeah. 2020 is the year of buying things online. <laughs> everyone in my house is kind of having a heightened um, response to truck pulling in. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she's like, I know that this is what my dog is hard hardwired to do. And yet it makes me insane. So can we stop it? Right. Right. And right. we have a lot of that where it's like, I know, but... I know, right. but yes, beagles were bred to sing at the top of their lungs, you know, when aroused, but I still can't have it in the condo. Okay. Yes, terriers were bred to chase and kill without much of a filter or a thought, small fuzzy mammals. But I don't want that behavior in my household, neighborhood, et cetera. I want right. you to like stop it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and partly, partly what I really want to impart here is that um, going back again to that a whole idea of perception is that the really important things in nature that were the most critical to survival, when those stimulus emerge or appear in the environment, 
it skips the frontal lobe filter when that animal notices that very mm -hmm. important stimulus. It's like, I know what to do because my instincts have hardwired me to know that's really, really important stuff. So I respond without a thought. And yet we still judge the dog, even subconsciously for exhibiting the behavior of, you know, wanting to chase the cat and screaming at the top of their lungs when we're walking down the street with the dog on the leash, like bad dog, or we want to just reinforce with some alternate motivator, like mm -hmm. a treat or a toy for a dog where that's not going to come close to trumping what that original motivation was and the dopamine hit they're going to get for engaging in that hardwired instinctual behavior. Exactly. So I'm coming back to border collies again because, of course, they're easy to pick on, but they, they really are the classic example yeah. of this because um, we, we, myself, my clients, struggle with a lot of these behaviors that, like you said, skip, they, they blow through all the stop signs and they just happen. And then the dog kind of, yes, we, we, we believe experiences this dopamine hit and it's, it's kind of this ingrained, like, and now this feels right to me mm -hmm. because I have made the, I believe I've made the thing move or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, my best shot at what I call sticky, stocky bullshit behavior. So that's very much, <laughs> that's my technical term for the border collie that stalks and stares at things that maybe they shouldn't stalk and stare at like other dogs. Right. Um, rails or other dogs doing agility um right. or me in heel work so um, <laughs> ssbs sticky stucky bullshit is for me my best line of defense is actually to provide outlets for those behaviors that are not this mm -hmm. and then in those contexts know that that's what's going to show up that's what wants to show up mm -hmm. and so i'm basically prompting other things Mm -hmm. from day one in those moments. Mm -hmm. So I literally train anti-SSBS behaviors. I train them to sit pretty and sit up and like look up and like do all of those things in context where I know that might show up. So this is so perfect. All right, I'm going to further jump off a geek out train here. Um, so dopamine being a motivator and a reinforcer, and I can send you a really awesome link that you can post in the notes um, to yes. a, a wonderful... Uh, uh, research article that was done on that. So the, the brain, um, it, it, right. Once we have the, like, okay, so the stimulus presents itself. Dopamine is already released. It's meant to motivate the action that's yeah. appropriate in that yeah. situation. So the dopamine's already there. They're just going to yeah. get a whole couple more lines of cocaine once they engage in the yeah. behavior, you know? Um, and so really you want to take that, energy, that momentum, and you want to direct it in appropriate context and you want to dam the riverbed in other contexts. Cause it's like, flow. Yeah. it's like water going exactly. through a riverbed and it's got current, it's got momentum behind it. Um, and what's really interesting, I think a lot of people don't realize this. They think, well, if it doesn't accomplish what the dog was intending to accomplish, uh, then it doesn't reinforce the behavior when actually we know that the brain is experiencing the highest level of dopamine right before, say, acquisition or completion of a task. So it's just meant to reinforce for engagement in it in, in general, whether or not it's successful. So people will think, well, as long as the terrier doesn't catch the small animal, it won't reinforce the behavior. Well, 
not actually no. true. No. Just chasing yeah. the thing and feeling oh so close to grabbing it reinforces the daylights out of it. Um, and so when you're talking about this kind of sending the current one way versus another, it really is in recognition and understanding that I need to do something with that current. And, and I think part of what is really cool and, and you know, the way that nature works is it's not just this rigid genetics is everything. We know that the environment and learning in the environment as an individual through development and through your health and, you know, experience as a one in a million creature is also contributing. And so you have to be able to flex. And so both in nature, any one of those strong instincts has to have some room for modulation in this context, not this context, do it here, not here, not to say there won't be a lot of oops, I did it in the wrong context in the learning curve. But that's, that's how we've been able to teach hound dogs to hunt one animal versus another. That's how we've been able, you know, to turn a uh, livestock guardian dog, um, or a herding dog onto bonding and defending and uh, herding different types of animals throughout the course of history to different flocks and different herds. Um, it doesn't mean that the releasing stimuli won't do its thing to excite the animal in the first place, but we can then have a dialogue with the dog about what to do in this situation instead of that. Um, there's a whole kind of question in my mind that I've debated throughout my career about whether to feed the drive in the presence of the stimuli that I actually don't want to be arousing to the dog? Like, do you just direct it onto the tug? You know, do you just turn it into a DRI behavior where you're replacing it with something incompatible? Or does that sometimes maintain in, in my questioning and theory that dopamine hit in the presence of that stimuli when I actually might want to really soften that? I might want to really try to desensitize that particular stimuli as, oh, oh, that's irrelevant. That's not the thing to herd. However, right here is when we turn on that behavior. Um, and I'm, I'm still playing with it. I've changed my mind throughout my career a few times. Well, and that's actually... The way that I've been thinking about that is that's why I will choose one route in one context and another route in another context, and then they're both effective. So, mm -hmm. for instance, one of my dogs, uh, one of my Border Collies, does like to flatten and stare at other dogs that he doesn't know on trails. And actually, once they get to him, if they aren't completely like, you are a murderer and I have to get out of here... <laughs> he can have like a perfectly normal social exchange with mm -hmm. those dogs. Um, so I don't like it there. Mm -hmm. Really don't like it there. I don't think it's safe. Um, I think it's not fair for this poor, innocent golden doodle that's walking <laughs> down the brain. Um, whereas if he does it a little, like if he does it on his dumbbell retrieve, if I throw the dumbbell and he gets a little bit vulture-y looking at the dumbbell, I can absolutely redirect him to bite a toy. I can, I can, I can send him for the dumbbell. Yeah. That's all fine. So in that situation, I think that I am feeding mm -hmm. the, um, this kind of cycle of dopamine if I release him for that dumbbell. Whereas in the situation with the dog, my 
attempts at altering that behavior, which have been largely successful, have had more to do with desensitization to the presence of other dogs. Right, right. And I think that's the nail on the head is really like, let's split all those hairs when we're working with a dog. Let's really think about rather than just DRI for everything, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like animals are able to discern when to stand down and de-escalate and just let the world go by and yeah. and when to arouse and engage not to say that comes autopilot or without a heck of a lot of obstacles in the case of an animal that's bred to literally notice every sudden environmental contrast ever <laughs> your, your border collie with the 435th sheep just thought about going right you know i know bless their hearts because they're they just don't miss anything and that's what we love and hate about them as a culture but exactly. um you know that's why you can teach them the names of 500 different toys is because they just split hairs ad nauseum but um, no coincidence there you know i was just thinking as you were describing the poor golden retriever coming down the trail one of the ways that I really see the extremes of artificial selection for these dogs historically show up is both in terms of how they notice just the external stimuli and events and conditions in the environment, that's straight neuroethology, but also I just was having this moment reflecting about how it affects how dogs signal to each other. And so like the stalky, vultury, border collie, signal to another dog is oftentimes a trigger extraordinaire because it looks so intense and predatory because it's bred to look intense and predatory so that the sheep respond a certain way. Yes. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the dog golden retriever walking by you on the trail doesn't know, Oh, don't worry. It's a modified predatory sequence. It won't complete. (laughs) It just just sees this like hard fixed stare that is a, is a super socially inappropriate signal that they're sending, not knowing what the end of that's going to be. Um, and you know, even dogs play styles, the way that they, um, you know, are concerned about things in the environment. Oh my gosh. I have to tell a story in light of this. Give me just a sec. Um, it, it all, it all is fed by what those selections for information and behaviors were. So, um, (laughs) last night, me and my family, teenagers, not young children, so don't hate me for it. We're playing cards against <laughs> humanity. And yeah, it's yeah. wonderful, very, um, you know, delinquent. Wholesome game. Game. Yeah, wonderful, right. wholesome game. Um, we were laughing so hard that my 14-year-old Border Collie mix, every time we would just spill into nauseating laughter, would come running in from the other room and do his thing that he does whenever people are being inappropriate and there's a huge sudden environmental contrast and bite my son's shoes. For some reason, he (laughs) blames my teenage son for all of it because he is our family class clown who's always being inappropriate from the dog's perspective. Um, And we're all just laughing hysterically because it's a very harmless type of like, you know, bite your shoes and not hard kind of thing. But I just remark at it every time, year after year with him, there's something that he considers not status quo that he cannot help but react to. Right. And so we could, you know, work on counter conditioning him to family laughter and all of that. But with the price of the behavior being as low as it is, we'd all just have a giggle and move on. Uh, And similarly, my livestock guardian breed, guardians bred to be resource guarders, quite literally, people are often shocked when guardians present lots of resource (laughs) guarding behavior, even though that's exactly what they were selected to care about and respond to. 
you know, in that situation, she'll ignore all the laughing. But once the border collie comes in and is trying to tell us what we are are and aren't allowed to do, she steps up to pretend the flock, protect the flock and say, stand down, border collie. This is my flock and you're not allowed to tell them what to do. And just watching all of that occur in real time. No training, not a personality thing. It really is what we're talking about here. It's their perception of events. And, you know, I think, gosh, the poor American public getting all of these dogs that they have no idea about what they're getting into. And then unfortunately, and I I think it's an, it's an accidental crime, but I think that as a pet industry and as trainers, we've accidentally endorsed this idea that it's all how you raise them and that none of that matters and that these things are abnormal, undesirable, and you just fix them with whatever your training style is. And it's, it's really unfair to the animals and the families in my mind. It is. And it actually goes back to, and I think that all walks of training are equally guilty of this, placing, um, placing a lot of blame on the dog owner as kind of saying, well, you know, if you trained them like this, it would be different. Right. And then maybe another walk of people says, well, if you were a better pack leader or whatever, then they would be different. Right. And I have news for everybody, whether you say pack leader or whether you say parent or whether you say leader, you're all talking about the same thing. Yep. And, and, and then rather than kind of saying, well, listen, isn't it remarkable actually that your German shepherds just deep in his bones needs to bark at the thing. Mm-hmm. And that maybe it doesn't have to be that you reinforced it Maybe it, maybe that it isn't that simple. Cause I often, my response, because people usually don't want their dogs to never bark ever. They just want them to stop. So you, I often say, just throw food, just say a signal that means you're going to throw food. Now throw food, dog stops barking, eats food, moves on with its life. And they're always very concerned that they're going to then reinforce this barking pattern mm-hmm. in which thus far in my career, I've not seen that happen <laughs> because because it was it wasn't about your food in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I think that right, so people I think you know how do we one one way and I think that your book is actually really a great way and I wish it was in more hands of all the people all the time um, <laughs> for people to be aware of what they have. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that there are other issues with um the fact that like my sister has a mixed breed dog who his embark DNA came back as like all the things, Malamute, Chow, Pitbull, Cattle Dog, wow. all, all the things that might be, yeah, you're picturing this dog now, yeah. you're right. Um, <laughs> not, an easy, not an easy dog, right? She adopted him when he was like 10 or eight weeks old from some rescue organization that said he's an Australian Shepherd mix. Mm-hmm. He's not. Right. And I'm so thankful that it's just she and her husband mm-hmm. and they're doggy people. Mm-hmm it work with this big guy he's 80 pounds he's a lot of work mm-hmm. he has a lot of feelings and needs that are counter to being a nice pet dog <laughs> and I'm just so happy that some family with little kids didn't get him and think he was going to be 30 pounds and nice the way that the rescue said he was and they 
didn't know any better either. And I think that happens to people a lot. And I think that's actually one reason that these DNA services are getting really, really popular. People wind up with dogs that they don't know what they are all the time. Yeah. And I really wish it was something that was more standard and affordable Mm -hmm. for shelters uh, to be able to do. I I think it it would be great if companies like Embark or Wisdom Panel could decide that they were going to promote this as common practice uh, for people who don't happen to get their animal from a shelter by providing a way for shelters to DNA test everything that comes through their doors. Because, you know, I I made up the app that goes along with the book for that purpose of trying to fill in that gap. So at least people could try to identify the primary breed group that might be influencing the dog's genetics. And it's it's about as accurate as getting the group as a DNA test is for getting the breeds. You know, it's about a 90% on, it's assuming you make the right selections. Um, We've found there's a whole learning curve kind of issue in people just literally making the wrong selections so that like they don't have the attention span to look at the two tail pictures long yeah. enough to even pick the one that's accurate whole oh other gosh. story um Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but you know that was our attempt to try to say okay well here's some tool you can use to help you get closer to that truth but i think we have to start with the change in our values in this culture that it matters it it does matter and that you're not a breedist for crying out loud for saying that genes matter yeah i think i get um my current kind of group of dog people does not vilify me for purchasing the dogs that i want on purpose mm-hmm. but i've been certainly in groups of dog people who do feel that way and actually my sister has got the we call him a chalamusky um is she's kind of one of those people but kind of one of those like never gonna buy a dog from a breeder Mm -hmm. she's done too much shelter work kind of people and my and I am perfectly fine with wherever anybody wants to get a dog but that awareness and that kind of and this is the dog I'm getting. Right. They are not all the same. It's not in all how you raise them. And you can raise them exactly. You know, she also, she had a St. Bernard too yeah. before who was raised the same, who was a very, very different dog from this. Right. Yep. And I think we just don't talk about that enough. No, we, well, and I think part of it is we're so divorced from the roots. Again, it was why I wrote the book. It wasn't because I just needed something to kill some spare time that I didn't actually have. It was because I felt compelled to put something out there that was some modern resource that at least gave people a point of reference for the big picture, because there's nothing out there that's giving them that honest unbiased kind of glimpse of like, okay, so what did that originally look like and why? What was the original lock for that key? And then once you have an understanding of that, imagine that behavior in your living room. Does that work Mm -hmm. for you or not so much? Because it doesn't mean that something having been selectively bred for will show up, but it sure as shit means we shouldn't be surprised if it does, right? Um, And so rather than us continuing to purport the myth that it's all how you raise them, looking at it like it's dog racism to talk about breeds, I'm sorry, but humans were not artificially selected to the extremes dogs have. It's not apples to apples to be talking about this stuff. It is actually really critical to their welfare and our understanding compassionately of them. Um, But 
you know, we can't just keep doing what you were talking about a moment ago, whether we like to use shot collars and prong collars or whether we're just all about cookies or we're a balanced trainer or however we demonize each other one way from another as trainers, often we're starting with the wrong question. We're saying, how do I change their behavior? Not yeah. what am I looking at? Why is that happening? If I should modify it in the first place, or if there's yeah. other things we might should be doing in the environment to manage against the situation that is creating that perception of a stimuli in a certain context to just bypass frontal lobe and then correcting the dog in response to exhibiting that instinct we bred into them or just redirecting them all the time, which can work, but it doesn't always work. And sometimes it just creates some really funny little behavior chains too. Well, it really can. And I think it's important to mention too because this is kind of one of my big soapboxes is that intentionally modifying the behavior of another, of another animal that you are living with is um, inherently intrusive, yes. whether you are, whether you're using aversive. Oh my God. Thank you for saying that. I just got chills. I just I, let's say it again, louder for the people in the back, intentionally modifying behavior of another animal, another being is invasive and intrusive. It is. And especially when we get to these behaviors that are hardwired and that were they were put in there mm -hmm. by us. Right. <laughs> we did it. Right. Um, and it's and so whether you're using, you know, just because you're using clickers and cookies does not actually mean that it is okay to do. Right. I obviously think that's kinder. It's obviously the route that I tend to choose to go, right. but it is inherently intrusive to say, you know, it's kind of what I always say to people. It's like, I don't like football, but I don't get to tell you that you can't watch it. Right, right, right. And we're literally trying to change what's important to them. And what in some right. cases is downright worrisome and disturbing and concerning. You know, mm -hmm. we, we have a bunch of people over for a party and they bring their toddlers and they're just all running around having a good time. And let's pick on the border collie. What their experience of your toddler party is could be a living nightmare of, of everything hitting the fan and all the ducks out of the row and all the I's not dotted and all the T's not crossed. And he feels a compulsion, not even a desire that goes through frontal lobe, a reflexive compulsion to do something. And here we are either potentially punishing the behavior or even redirecting it, what I've found is that confusion is another form of abuse in my mind. Intentional, not intentional as it is. <laughs> I say that I say that confusion is the most aversive stimulus. I've I agree with you. And so I tend to be very much direct with my clients about like, I want to speak straight to the behavior and I want to explain the conditions language gap as it is to the dog in the best way I have possible so that they can have the closest thing to all cards on the table on the up and up. We're talking about the same thing. So I see what they're seeing as close as I can. I'm seeing and valuing their perception of the context and the circumstances and the events. And then I am trying to give them the important relevant information about how best to navigate those circumstances as their tour guide through this modern 21st century, crazy, overstimulating, under-satisfying world that they found themselves in where they don't have a point of reference for what a jogger is. If someone's running down the street, 
They should be running towards or away from something. <laughs> They're not doing it just to burn calories because that flies in the face of the economy of behavior model, right? Why would you waste yeah. energy running in circles? Yeah. That's stupid. I mean, I happen to agree. I, that, I but... do too. That's why I don't run in circles. I believe it's a waste of time and energy. Of course, my 20 extra pounds would disagree with me on that. But, um, you know, the things like that, that we just, we sit there and we, we marvel at the dog's reaction to these things. Like, why would he do that? You know, I keep telling him no. I keep jerking on the leash. I keep trying to get him to do something else and give him cookies for it. But it the cookies don't have anything to do with why they're doing what they're doing. You jerking on the leash and punishing and yelling and your approval or lack thereof doesn't have anything to do with why they're doing what they're doing. Okay, I think that's as good a place to cut this episode in half as any. It was a long conversation, and so I want to make sure that you all can listen to it um, in its entirety, but in two separate parts. So be sure to come back next week, same time, same place, for part two with Kim Brophy. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. And if you're interested in supporting this podcast, as well as joining the CogDog Radio community, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio and become a patron for as little as $4 a month. I hope to see you there. Cheers. Cheers.